Leading Ideas Talks podcast is brought to you by the Lewis Center for Church Leadership of Wesley Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. Subscribe free to our weekly e-newsletter, Leading Ideas, at churchleadership.com slash leadingideas. Leading Ideas Talks is also brought to you by Leading the Church in a Post-Pandemic Culture, a new Doctor of Ministry and Church Leadership focus from Wesley Theological Seminary and the Lewis Center for Church Leadership. With this track, clergy will receive the enhanced knowledge, skills, and motivation to increase congregational and denominational service, vitality, and growth in the post-pandemic world. Learn more and apply by February 15th for May 2023 at churchleadership.com slash demon. And remember, to stay up to date with the latest church leadership strategies and information, please like and subscribe to this channel and click the bell icon to get updates for new videos. How can you lead effectively given the inherent messiness of congregational life? In this episode, leadership expert Mike Bonham speaks about the art of leading change, responding to those who resist change, and how leading well depends on having the courage to allow yourself to be changed. I'm Ann Michael. I'm a senior consultant with the Lewis Center for Church Leadership of Wesley Theological Seminary. I'm one of the editors of Leading Ideas e-newsletter, and I'm so pleased to be the host for this episode of Leading Ideas Talks. I'm talking today with Mike Bonham, who's a consultant and a coach and an author who's worked with churches and church leaders for over two decades. Um, earlier in his career, Mike worked with the McKinsey and Company, and he holds an MBA from Harvard uh, Business School. He's the author of several books. Uh, one of his classics, which has been a huge help to me, is uh, Leading from the Second Chair. Uh, but his most recent book is The Art of Leading Change, 10 Perspectives on the Messiness of Ministry. And that's the focus of our time together today, Mike. So welcome to you. Thanks so much, Anne. I'm pleased to be here and uh, really appreciate your work with the podcast and with Leading Ideas. So I'm looking forward to our conversation. Great. So um, early in your book, you state that the work of leading change in the church is always messy. And uh, that's really the, the premise of your book. And so I wanted to give you a chance to elaborate on that theme. Yeah, uh, it is messy. I, I think the readers will all immediately identify with that idea because leadership is all about people and uh, people come into our lives in the church in all sorts of different ways. Some of them are ready for change. Some of them are reluctant to change. Some of them are deeply invested in the work of the church. Some are not. Some are very mature believers. Some are not. And they bring all of that and whatever past experiences they may have had with the church into the current context. And that just makes for a pretty messy leadership equation, particularly when we're talking about change. And, and frankly, there's not a church uh, in the country right now that is not looking at some sort of change, sometimes right. dramatic, sometimes small, but but we're all faced with change right now. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that struck me um, thinking about this issue of the, the messiness of change is that, um, you know, you, you're, you're beginning with this assumption that, that, that leadership is 
almost inherently messy, but at the same time, you really outline a perspective on change that's quite thoughtful and deliberate and planned. And at some level that struck me as paradoxical because we think of messiness as the antithesis of orderly purposeful change. Um, but I think your book helped me see that something can be both orderly and purposeful and messy at the same time. Hmm. Do, do you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. Well, yes. Uh, I don't think that the book tries, it suggests that, the book does not suggest that we can just eliminate messiness. I'm just trying to give mm -hmm. us some tools to, to make it a bit more orderly, a bit less messy, and to allow leaders to see ways to make progress through the mess. So yes, I think it can be both. Yeah, you use the, the throughout the book, you use the metaphor of art, uh, and you talk about painting and sculpting and about how uh, those arts uh, necessarily involve mess, uh, you know, even, even though they are creative and constructive and, and follow their own norms in terms of how things happen. I, I thought that was really helpful to think about how, how something can be both messy and purposefully directed at the same time. Yeah, and, you know, one of my favorite uh, art examples that relates to that is the sculpt sculpting, right? Mm -hmm. The work of a sculptor is, in, you know, especially if you think about working with any kind of stone, uh, is inherently messy. You're chipping away, you're creating dust. Uh, you can't do that work without ending up at the end of a work day just covered in what you've chipped away. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that imagery is also instructive for leaders that there's, uh, the potential that we chip away too much. And so knowing exactly when and how to chip away, what to work on, what not to work on, when to step back and say the work is finished, at least for now, mm -hmm. uh, I think is all instructive from a leadership standpoint. Right, and so one of your other sort of key metaphors in the book is that leadership is an art, not a science. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and so, the, you know, the, the, the part of the backstory on that, the very first book that I had the opportunity to uh, co-author with a couple of friends was it, the title is leading congregational change and when I had opportunities to speak uh, on the content of that book afterwards I almost always started my presentation by saying I'm going to talk mostly about the science of leading change today which is more about process and can give the appearance of being very straightforward and very linear and very clean and nice and neat and orderly and, and really my reason for coming back and writing this book on the art of leading change was to just recognize how messy that leadership task is and to, and to, to step away from some of that science and to delve into the, the complexities that are always involved in leading change. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of the books that I've read on church leadership over the years uh, will make the point that, you know, conflict isn't necessarily bad. It can be generative, that leadership is messy and that, you know, chaos is the medium of creation, at least if you're God. Right. Um, and, I, you know, I've also experienced leaders that seem to think that the best way to provoke change is to just kind of stir the pot and upset a Equal, um, the equilibrium of a system. Uh, so my question is this, um, is there a tipping point, uh, a point at which messiness becomes sort of irredeemable or insurmountable rather than being um, 
part of uh, an expected process. Um, I, you know, I think we've all been in situations where a mess is just a mess right. uh, and not a good thing. <laughs> and, and so, I, you know, I, I wonder, I wonder, you know, since you're working with this idea of the inherent messiness of leadership, um, you know, when does when does messiness become bad? No, I think that's a great observation. And yeah, I, I agree with the premise, right? That it, we can go too far, that it can become too messy, uh, but sometimes that it really is just a mess. Uh, the the very first of the 10 perspectives in the book is about trust. The, the title of the chapter is Lead with Trust. And I think that that's part of the answer to the question that you're asking, Anne. If, if the our ability to lead uh, and, and even stir things up uh, is highly dependent on how much people trust us or our ability to lead well, at least in those situations. And so mm-hmm. someone who just comes in and stirs the pot but doesn't have that relational capital uh, is very likely to create, in your words, an irredeemable mess, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you look around and people aren't following. You have a great idea, but but you wonder why people are not excited about it. And a lot of times it's because you haven't invested in the relational capital or you've drawn down the relational capital too much. Uh, Todd Bolsinger in his book, Canoeing the Mountains, says, without trust, there is no travel. And I think that's a really helpful phrase, right? If if, if people don't trust you enough, then they're not going to go on this change journey with yeah. you. Right. And they're not going to tolerate mess, right? I mean, I think people are willing to tolerate um disorder when when they when they believe that it's that it's purposeful as opposed to just chaotic <laughs> I, right. I used this, sometimes I have have used the saying that um, when the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing sometimes it means that the spirit of God is at work I mean sometimes it just means that the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing but I do think that sometimes it means that you know um, something something new is is happening and that and that can be can be generative mm-hmm. uh, you know there are a couple chapters in your book um, that deal with the subject of um, how to deal with people who oppose or resist change um, and I think you've got some really great advice on that subject so I, I wanted to give you the opportunity to speak about that Sure. The, 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 the one chapter, the title is Resistors Are Not the Enemy. And I, that was probably the idea as much as anything that compelled me into developing all of this into a book. Uh, we're, our society in general is so polarized. And, you know, I deeply believe that the church ought to be an example of how we can act differently, how we can sit in pews and sit in classes and small groups with people who think differently and yet not immediately label them as the enemy. And yet, unfortunately, a lot of those societal trends have crept into the church. And and so, you know, I think the idea that we need to hang on to, especially in leadership, is that just because someone uh, asks a question about a new idea or maybe even registers some kind of resistance to it does not make them our enemy. Uh, You know, my experience with churches is that the vast majority of the time when someone is voicing some level of opposition, it's not because they're an inherently evil person. I mean, we're all fallen. We're all sinful. But, but 
they're not voicing that opposition because their goal is to tear down the church. They're voicing that opposition either because they really aren't convinced of the rightness of the idea because uh, maybe sometimes out of fear. Um, sometimes they're voicing that opposition because they see something very different than the leader sees that's important to, to be considered. Mm -hmm. But none of those things make them an enemy. And right. so if we can if, if we can really listen to those uh, opposing ideas and embrace the human being behind them, we have a much better chance of forging a great path forward that will include them rather than starting to exclude them and potentially even divide the church in the process. Yeah, I, I sometimes have used the motto in my work that when, you know, there's someone who is objecting to something or standing in the way of something that I'm trying to accomplish, I'll use the saying that person has just become my new best friend, because, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, rather than try to push them away or vilify them that's not gonna accomplish what I need to accomplish. I need to figure out how to work with the person who, who you know, whose support I need on something. And I, 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 I've really trained myself to think that way. And I think it's been one of the most important things because the opposite of that is sort of allowing yourself to vilify somebody who, who may be essential to what you're trying to do. And that's, that's counterproductive. Um, right, yeah, uh, I agree. But you also talk about how, um, leaders can't fall into the trap of trying to please everybody. Um, and and that that's a perspective to keep in mind when dealing with people who oppose change as well. So do you want to speak to that? Yeah, no, I, I mean, two sides of the same coin, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I'm well aware from, you know, two decades of work with ministries and ministry leaders that there's a, seems to be a disproportionate share of people in ministry leadership roles who kind of fall off on the side of being people pleasers, right? Wanting to keep everybody happy. Uh, and I get it in terms of the kinds of people who are called into ministry and the kind of training they receive. Uh, but, you know, that idea is not so much about, is it, really that to point out the dangers of waiting to get everybody on board. If we wait to get 100% support for a significant change in a church or a ministry, uh, what we will tend to do is wait an inordinately long time and or really water down the idea uh, to try to, to get to a lowest common denominator. And ultimately, I don't think that either one of those in many cases are what God would want us to do. Um, it, it sets us up for a lot of disappointment and very little progress if we wait to get everybody on board. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of, one of the other mottos I've used a lot is that consensus doesn't require unanimity. And I, and I think there are a lot of people in churches that are paralyzed by the idea that in order to have a consensus around a decision, 100% of people in the church need to agree with that. And that that's, um, you know, really paralyzing often because it's it's an unrealistic, unrealistic idea. Yeah, um, in, my, in my consulting work, um, I'll often have that exact conversation mm -hmm. uh, because I'm surprised at how often people equate consensus and unanimity. Right. And, and, and I mean, from a dictionary standpoint, those, they do not mean the same thing. Right. Right. Uh, and consensus, I think bothers some people because it's sort of a mushy term. It's not just majority. Right. So, so what is it? And, but, yeah. but I also think it's a, it's a great spiritual concept, right? I mean, yeah. so you look at uh, the council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, and ultimately they say it seemed right to the Holy spirit and to us. 
yeah. uh, to not require the Gentile believers to adhere to all of Jewish uh, Jewish practices. It doesn't say that it was unanimous. Right. Doesn't say we took a vote. It says it seemed, and and I think that's a model of consensus, really. Right. right. We didn't vote. We didn't necessarily wait for unanimity, mm-hmm. but ultimately it seemed right to the Holy Spirit and to us. And is that a little bit mushy? Is that a little bit unclear? Well, what percentage of people is that? Is it a two-thirds supermajority? Is it, no, it's consensus. Right. And I, that's actually one of the things that I teach in some of my leadership classes is how, that how do you drive a consensus? What can a leader do to, since it is mushy, right? But there are skills and, that people can use in driving consensus. And I think making that, making what the objective is and how to get there clear to, to a leader is really a helpful uh, tool set. Um, I want to move on to another subject. Um, you know, as, as I read your book, I was very aware that sort of underlying your discussion of leadership change is a particular model of change that begins with a leader and then the leader gets the approval of other key leaders and then they communicate the change more broadly and they recruit other people to implement the change. In fact, it led me to pull off my shelf John Cotter's book because it, it really seemed like it was a, a change process that um, echoed that to me. Um, and you know, it's a very classic change theory. It's a very good change theory. Uh, but it also struck me um, that, that it's kind of a, a top-down model of leadership. It, it assumes one leader and many followers. And you know, in my experience, at least, a, a lot of the more significant changes that I have seen happen in churches um, don't necessarily start with one key leader. Um, sometimes change bubbles up in a more decentralized, bottom-up kind of way. Um, and I have written and thought quite a bit about the subject of how the church might embrace a more decentralized, inclusive, um, bottom-up, if you will, understanding of, of congregational leadership. So I, I wanted to give you a chance to speak to that. I appreciate your observation. Uh, so I'm going to I'm going to say something that probably sounds like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. Um, so bear with me. Uh, I do think that uh, pastors are in a unique role in their leadership in a church. Uh, and you know, years ago, George Barney, uh, in one of his books, talked about how many pastors did not have the gift of leadership, and so. He proposed, well, you know, let them use the gifts they have and other people need to lead. Uh, and I thought that that was uh, a fairly uh, an insufficient and short-sighted kind of observation mm-hmm. because people do look to the pastor to provide some significant leadership. Having said that, uh, I do not believe in a kind of Moses model of pastor, right? Go to the mountaintop, you know, hear what God's vision is and then come down and tell all the people and expect them to follow. Um, and that's not at all what I'm trying to communicate in the book. So I do think that pastors spend a lot more time thinking about the issues in the church right. and have some unique insights about how to lead it. But, uh, you know, one of the chapters in the book is titled Heavy Loads Require Strong Teams. And that was really geared towards, you know, how do we have a more collaborative style of leadership uh, that involves the input of other leaders in the church in deciding what the right steps to take are, where we're headed, uh, and then enlist their support in making that happen. 
-hmm. so I do think pastors are in a unique role, uh, but I don't believe in that uh, purely top-down model of leadership at all. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I can't agree with you more that pastors need to be leaders. <laughs> and, and I mean, that that's what we're all about at the Lewis Center for Church Leadership. But I, but I think, uh, you know, going along with that is an understanding that everyone is a leader, in a sense, in the church. I mean, everyone has some gift to contribute uh, to the work. And so I, I, I think, I think, Finding a balance between those different leadership perspectives is challenging, in part because our cultural models of leadership are tend to be so top down. And, and frankly, you know, some of our polity is too depending on, on your tradition. And so I, it's just always a question I think about um, mm -hmm. because I, 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 do th I do think that um, change often happens in more um, organic ways um, as well. And, and that may be part of the messiness of it too. Um, along that line, uh, I wanted to shift gears a bit um, and talk about the post-pandemic reality. Uh, you, I know you wrote this book during the pandemic and uh, pandemic was a great time to write a book. I wrote a book during the pandemic too. Exactly, um, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but um, I wanted to ask, um, how has the experience of the pandemic and this period in which so many churches were really forced to adopt new practices almost overnight, um, has that changed your understanding of how change happens in churches? The, I thought at the, in the first year or so of the pandemic, uh, that we were going to have this great opportunity uh, to do some pretty fundamental rethinking of leadership yeah. in churches and and prior you know um, you know how we would be church uh, and what that would look like going forward. What I've sensed over the last twelve months is that a lot of that energy and creativity around let's do things really differently has been uh, overwhelmed by the uh, the concerns about people aren't coming back or what does our budget look like or the people that are coming back are just asking us to go back to the way it was before the pandemic. Uh, and so uh, my fear is that we're missing, that we've missed or at least, or maybe are missing an opportunity to do some deeper rethinking. I think we have, I think what we proved that we could be nimble at a tactical level in those mm -hmm. you know first few months of the pandemic um you know churches that i would have thought small churches that i would have thought they're never going to be able to, to right. do something online um prove that you know large and small churches adapted in that respect really well but the deeper kinds of changes uh, that would ultimately i think help them to engage more effectively with their community and thinking differently how do we reach people that um are not coming to church? How do we how do we connect with people for whom the pandemic was really a deep soul shaking experience, but who don't identify as Christian? How do we you know how do we connect with them? I don't see a lot of churches doing that deeper work right now, and I wish they would. Yeah, no, I I, I share your your view that um, I think churches have been um, very quick to try to get back to you know, the old normal as opposed to, you know, trying to think about what, what the new normal is. Um, I, I guess really at the heart of the question I asked was 
this idea that, you know, uh, disruptive change, um, that the pandemic probably was a pretty good example of uh, change being initiated by disruption. And, and perhaps the fact that a pandemic eventually runs it, its course means that it wasn't, a tr you know, a true disruptor. Um, but, but I kind of wanted to think about that idea in relation to your ideas, if, you know, how, how, how much of change, real change can happen through disruption as opposed to the kind of, the kind of processes that you've outlined. Well, there's, there's no question that a disruption, whether it's a, a global disruption like a pandemic or a very localized disruption, um, you know, that, that something happens in the community around the church or in the church itself is a great catalyst for can be a great catalyst for change. Um, I think what I'm grieving a bit is just what you said. I mean, the the I don't know when we say the pandemic is officially over, but it's not it's not disrupting life in the church today the way it was two and a half years ago, right. Right. certainly, right? And so I think because because that disruption is mostly in the past, it's created this opportunity for people to be asking questions more around how do we get back to the way it was as opposed to how do we embrace some sort of new normal? Yeah, yeah. And it's probably not just the church that's in that place. Oh, not at all, not at all, yeah. I mean, I, I think lots of... Lots of organizations are, are you know, thinking about or, or sort of it caught in that same that same mindset. You know, I I found the conclusion of your book very compelling, uh, where you wrote about the fact that um, someone can't really lead change in an organization without the courage to open themselves up to the possibility of being personally changed, uh, and so that corporate change. Um, goes hand in hand with um, with personal change. If I'm if I'm saying I mean, maybe I'm maybe I'm not summarizing that correctly, but 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 I I found that very that really rang true to me, and um, I found that to be um, a compelling way uh, to sort of end your discussion about change. So I wanted to give you a chance to speak to that. Well, I think you summarized it uh, quite accurately, and, and actually. Uh, that chapter uh, was in an early draft was the start of the book. And I had a, a, you know, one of the people who reviewed it for me said, what if you put that at the end? Uh, and I do think that's, you know, obviously that's where I concluded that it belonged, uh, that, you know, we can think about all these uh, issues of leading change and congregational change, corporate change, however you want to say it. Uh, but ultimately it does come back to our willingness to change ourselves. And, and it's a spiritual process. And that's, that's uh -huh. a big part of what I tried to describe in that chapter is that, uh, you know, the, the change needs to begin with us, but our change needs to be driven by what God is doing in our lives. And you can't, I, I don't, I just don't have a theology that says that God, you know, works a change in us and then we're done. Right. And I, I think that's a, even though I'm not uh, United Methodist, that's a, pretty Wesleyan concept of yeah. sanctification, I think, right? Right. Uh, <laughs> and the, I think that, uh, you know, back to your question about top-down leadership, the people in our churches are smart. Uh, and if they sense a leader who is trying to dictate change from on high, 
but he or she is not willing to change on their own. If they sense, if they sense that mm-hmm. you know that kind of spiritual work is not going on in the life of the leader, and the God is not shaping and changing them, they're going to be much more resistant to whatever change uh, that the lead and, and and I don't know this kind of that top down model again, but whatever change the leader is proposing. Uh, yeah. And so I think it's I think it's critically important. Yeah, no, and it, and it did occur to me that it does loop back to this question of inclusivity and leadership, because when you talk about the ways that a leader opens him or herself up to personal change in the process of change, it's through listening to others, it's through including people on the team who may have different views than they do, and so forth. And so it, it you're really talking about some of the collaborative aspects of leadership and thinking about you know how 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 a leader sh- how a leader makes themselves vulnerable and open uh, to others and and uh, in the process of change. so I, I really did appreciate appreciate that part of the book. Um, as we wrap this up, um, one, one thing I often do when I talk to people is ask them, you know, either how people get, can get started or, you know, one, one good piece of advice for people. And so if, if, if a, a church, a new church leader were coming to you uh, and, and based on this and your other work, if you wanted to give them, you know, one piece of good advice or, or one first step that they might take, what would that be? You know, I would probably ask a lot more questions before I would give advice because that's how I'm that's how I'm trained right I mean I I really do I do think that the uh, advice is always context specific to who the leader is and and this context in which they're serving having said that the thing that immediately came to mind for me as you asked that question Anne, is I would say schedule some time away Go go to whatever your favorite retreat setting is, um, you know. And if you don't have one, find one. But get some time away and spend some time reflecting on your own leadership, uh, listening to God, uh, and getting as much clarity as you can. Because the the change journey and the, the, some of this goes to that last chapter that we were talking about just a second ago. Uh, I think we have to ask the question, God, what changes do I need to make to be able to lead yeah. well? Uh, I believe that the change journey that I'm talking about needs to, in terms of the congregation, needs to be spirit-led. And so, you know, the um, there are a whole lot of us, myself included, often, who have bought into this idea of just constant busyness, right? I've, 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 my, my worth is defined by how busy I am. Uh, you know, how many times do we have a conversation with somebody and say, how are you doing? Oh, I'm, I'm great. I'm just so busy right now. I mean, like, I mean, that's a badge mm-hmm. of, of, of leadership success to be incredibly busy. Right. And what that means, we don't have time to listen to God and to let God do the transforming work that God wants to do in our own lives. And possibly to give some real clarity about what the right next steps are for leadership. So I think the one piece of advice back to your question that I might give to somebody is spend that time away. And and then see where God takes you. And then the second piece of advice, and this goes to your to your question about collaborative leadership, is start to get some people around you who not 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 who are uh, always agreeing with you, but who are at least equally open to where God might be leading the church. 
and who would explore that with you. Well, that, that's great advice. Um, Mike, I want to thank you for this conversation. Uh, thank you for this book, because I think it will be tremendously helpful uh, to people, um, but really for your entire body of work, your other books, as well as your other work in the field of church leadership. Um, I'm just so appreciative for your witness and your work. Again, the book is The Art of Leading Change, 10 Perspectives on the Messiness of Ministries. So wish you luck with the launch of this book and appreciate your time today. Thank you so much, Anne. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for joining us for Leading Ideas Talks. Subscribe free to our weekly e-newsletter, Leading Ideas, at churchleadership.com slash leadingideas. Thanks for joining us for Leading Ideas Talks. Please like and subscribe to this channel and click the bell icon to get updates for new videos.